My most memorable event from Sunday school as a kid, let's clarify that, was when I went up to one of the leaders and I said to him, hey man, what's the latest you've ever stayed up? Thinking maybe he stayed up till 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, maybe 1 a.m. And he said, well, I've just, I've stayed up all night before. I've just never gone to bed. And I thought, wow. But of course, that's, that's the ultimate bedtime, is no bedtime. And so I thought that was amazing. I still honor him to this day. But the very first time that I stayed up all night, that I did not go to bed, it actually was not fun. This was kind of grade eight, you know, first heartbreak kind of thing. Uh, I'll tell you, why not? I took this girl to like a dinner and dance kind of thing. It turns out she didn't really want to go with me. She was just going with me to get back at this other guy. It wasn't a fun evening and I just, laid in bed all night, you know, just kind of confused, hurt, felt used. Um, I'm good now, she's dead, but that's besides the point. I joke, that's a joke, don't cancel me. So, do you remember though, back on track, do you remember the first time you stayed up all night because you were upset or hurt or angry? The, the challenge is it cuts twice, right? There's the immediate pain and there's the scar tissue that kind of hangs around the heart. And whenever this memory comes to mind, this person, this event, it all comes up again and you just stew on it. You can chew resentment almost like a cud. Uh, this actually got worse because um, now that I'm married, if someone says or does something to my wife, I'm surprised that actually uh, that sits with me even longer. How dare you do this to her? And I can imagine once you get kids, it, it just amplifies more and more. There's more people that can uh, affect you. If you hurt them, it hurts you even more. It's this endless cycle of messed up people doing messed up things and it stays with you forever and we're kind of carrying around this bag of pain and resentment and anything can set it off at any time. And it raises this question when we're robbed of our peace from these people and these wrongdoings. This question can simply be this, how can I have rest from my enemies? It's kind of dramatic. How can I have peace from my pain? People that have wronged me and hurt me or people that will in the future. You may not think you have enemies. Some of you, you're like, no, I know who those people are, but we're in a world of such continual conflict. And now it's not even face to face. You can have online enemies. You can have your work enemies. You can have your, you know, the guys on the commute that you, you always seem to run across on the, the DVP. It perpetuates. And here's what's interesting is that with, with all the things that God says and God does and the promises he makes, he says to Israel that one of the upshots of his deliverance for them, his salvation for them, will be rest from their enemies. This phrase comes up quite a few times. Deuteronomy 12.10, for example, he's, he's talking about the things that are going to happen, that he's going to do for them. And he says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that your Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety. And in Deuteronomy 25, God talks about how he was going to deliver them from the Amalekites. Those are the, the people that Haman came from. And Haman is kind of the representative figure of these people that are trying to destroy Israel in Esther. And today we're looking at Esther 7. And Queen Esther is going to do something in this chapter that is going to give Israel rest from her enemies. Chapter 9 is going to look back on chapter 7 and twice use this phrase, rest from their enemies. And we're going to see today how Esther gives Israel rest from her enemies. Ultimately, how this points to how Jesus gives us rest from our enemies and how we today, here and now, 
can have rest from our enemies. So I invite you to turn with me to Esther chapter 7, as we see kind of like this dramatic peak of the story. So far we've seen that Israel is in Persia. They're in Persia. The queen, um, the current queen is ousted. The king kicks her out and holds a nationwide beauty pageant. Queen Esther gets the gold medal. She is now the new queen. Seems good, but the second in command in all of Persia, his name is Haman, he declares, he pronounces a royal edict through the mouth of the king, kind of like a puppet, that there's going to be a genocide on all of the Jewish people, on all of Israel. And he puts a date, he puts a time. And this will be financially beneficial for Persia and personally beneficial for Haman because he will be able to finally destroy his arch nemesis Mordecai, this man who will not bow to him. He will not give him honor and respect. So I'm going to take him out. This is what Haman's saying. I'm taking out Mordecai. I'm taking out everybody else. And Queen Esther decides that she wants to stand up and tell the king, guess what? Maybe we shouldn't do this. And so she's been hosting these banquets. She's been hosting several banquets trying to rekindle her relationship with the king because he's got a harem, okay? He's got some ladies on the side. He hadn't even seen Esther for about a month. This shows how attentive, as a, as, ah, how attentive of a husband he has been. So this is kind of where we pick up at another party, another feast. These are the, the hinges of the story. Anytime there's a feast, you see there's a transition that's about to come. And here we are again another feast. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, this is a, this is a what's it called? A bender. That's it. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said again to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. He's saying, okay, what is it? We've been spending this time together. I know you want to talk to me. What is it? Is it, do you want more time? Do you want more quality time? Do you want more emotional availability? Do you want to go on a trip somewhere? What is it? Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had not been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Let me summarize that. What do you want? I just want not to be murdered. Simple request. Up until this point, Queen Esther has been very timid, and we see her stepping out. She was silent, now she's speaking. She was passive, now she's active. This is a woman stepping out in faith, growing in her faith, growing in her queenly role. She's stepping into this through this courageous and truthful action. And it's rhetorically quite brilliant what she does. First, she sets up a premise. She says, if I have your favor, you chose me as the queen. If I have your favor in this way, her reputation is bound up with his. Guess what? Like it or not, publicly, in terms of image, we're kind of tied at the hip. You gave me your heart, so I have favor with you. If I have favor with you, and he's nodding, yes, you do. Yes, you do. She says, save my life. This is the petition. I'm about to be destroyed. If we were just going to be sold off, I wouldn't bother you with it. But we are going to be destroyed. My people will be destroyed, and so will I. She lays this at his feet. How does he respond? Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, 
Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. Haman's in the room. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So originally, when Esther says, someone's trying to kill me, King Xerxes doesn't put two and two together. You know, there's, there's this edict from Haman to kill all the Jewish people. And Esther says, guess what? Someone's trying to kill me. He doesn't connect the dots. It's day two of wine drinking. We can be sympathetic in this case. So she lays it at his feet. And the king gets up. And he leaves. He has to do some thinking. He is a problem now. This royal declaration has gone forth. It's irrevocable. But his queen is one of these people. Like most monarchs, he probably isn't mad at himself. He hasn't done due diligence. He isn't mad at himself. He's mad at Haman. Haman is the one that got him into this position. But by framing her response, by using the king's rhetoric, Esther says that her fate and the fate of her people are one. It's the same thing. They are intertwined in this way. The king is very angry because an assault on the queen is an assault on the king. It's not that he particularly loved his wife deeply. It doesn't seem like a good husband. He spends more time with the harem than he does running the kingdom in this way. But they're tied up for better or for worse. And it's interesting, that's um, noted by the Greek historian Herodotus. Okay, if, if, if people from the outside can say he's spending more time with the ladies than stewarding the land, you got some problems. This is just one of them. So, who did this? Where are they? And she says, a foe and an enemy, Haman. Camera cut, dun, dun, dun. Haman's like, what? Things just got really bad for Haman. The drop of a hat in this way. He probably was feeling good about himself. This isn't a humble man. He's probably, you know, tweeting online, I'm going to dinner with the queen and the king. I'll post some pictures later. He thinks he's being exalted, exalted. And this was the time for his condemnation. He probably thought, oh, I didn't know she was Jewish. This is a surprise to everyone in the room except for her. And this tells you also, if Haman didn't know she was Jewish, and the king didn't know she was Jewish. This probably tells you he doesn't know her very well. It's a side point. It's like they've been together for five years, you know, you're waking up, saying to your wife, hey, what are you doing today? Oh, I'm going to cook some Korean food. Why are you cooking Korean food? Well, I'm Korean. You did what? You're Korean? How long have you been Korean? I've been Korean my whole life. We've been married for five years. This king doesn't know his queen well, besides the point. But in this moment, okay, the king leaves, and now Haman... He's torn because either he has to get up and follow the king, which isn't going to go well because he knows that the king is mad, or he has to leave the room. And that might be seen as an admission of guilt. Because legally, no man could be alone in a room with a member of the king's harem. No man could be. And even if there were other people in the room, no man could be within seven steps of the queen's feet, the queen's, the queen's feet, of a member of the harem. Seven feet away, no looky, no touchy, COVID safe distance, you need to be away. So as soon as the king leaves, Haman has to go. He has to leave. But what happens? Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. That's a no-no. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? 
As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Ahem! Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. The eunuch pipes in and says, hey, and you remember those gallows that, that Haman built for the guy that saved your life? We can pause there. Um, when we think of gallows, we kind of think of uh, an execution by asphyxiation, like by hanging. The Persian time, um, there, there isn't like a clear English connotation for this, but they would have done it through the earliest form of crucifixion. That's what these gallows were for. The Persians invented crucifixion in around 800 BC. The Romans later perfected it, but it would be this big wooden pole and enemies and people to be made publicly shamed would be impaled on the pole. So when it says gallows, this is what he means. Don't think hangman, just think a big wooden post. Now. Haman is so hated that even the eunuchs jump in and say, hey, remember that, that, that thing that he built for this guy who saved your life? Well, guess what? Haman just wronged your wife and she wronged you. And do you remember that thing? See, they're just, they're just putting the ball on the tee. They're letting the king come in and have the great idea. It's crafty. Verse 9, and the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. End scene. That's how the chapter ends. There's a lot going on there. Consider the irony of this, the contrast between it, how the entire conflict between Haman and the Jewish people begins when Mordecai refuses to bow to him. And now Haman is the one bowing, begging at the feet of Esther to save his life. He falls before a Jew whom he has condemned to death to plead with her for his life. And as he falls on this couch, he falls away from his exalted position over all of the empire to the death of a traitor. The enemy of the Jews is executed for being an enemy of the king. Do you see all these reversals that happen in an instant? And when someone is taken captive or prisoner, they put a hood on their head. We see that in movies, we see that on TV. And Haman's face is covered. It's covered when he's deemed to be an enemy of the king. All that he ever wanted to do was to look upon the face of his king, but he could not see it. And this is, this is very, uh, very human longing. It's a glorious longing that Haman had for the wrong king. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says that one day we will see God face to face. You look at uh, early reformed theologians, the reformers said that we live in quorum Deo, which means in the face of God. We live in the face of God. We are to know that set before us. There's the face of God who knows us, who sees us, who loves us. He's aware of all of our thoughts, our deeds, our actions, and our being in this way. And one day, we all will see Jesus face to face. And he will either be smiling and welcoming us, or there will be the fury and wrath of a king in his eyes. Haman had a glorious idea, but a horrendous king. And when we look at the death of one man, this should remind us of the death of all men. That one day we will all die. We all have an expiry date. You can't, you know, look behind you to see it on there. But one day we will all stand face to face with God. So as we reflect on this, there's several things that we see. Immediately, obviously, we see that Esther gives Israel rest from her enemies. 
So far, Israel's arch enemy, Haman, has been removed. What's unclear is, okay, what's going to happen, though, with this proclamation, this declaration for genocide? That is still yet to be determined. It's unresolved. But the source of their suffering has been quenched in this way. We don't know yet what's going to happen, but she has given them peace for now. And whenever Israel gets rest or peace from their enemies, it never seems to stick for long. Moses gave it to them, Joshua gave it to them, David gave it to them, Solomon gave it to them, Esther seems to give it to them in this case, but it never stays for a long time. It never lasts. There's a reason why later prophets like Isaiah and Daniel will say that one day a true Messiah will come. All these other figures in the Bible, they're like mini-Messiahs, proto-Messianic figures. But the true Messiah will come, who will give Israel a forever peace, one that does not expire. True rest and true peace will come from the true Messiah one day. And in Esther chapter 7, in all of the Bible, we see hints, we see foreshadowings, we see a trail of breadcrumbs that leads to the ultimate true Messiah, Jesus. Let me prove it to you. We see in the story of Esther that Jesus gives us rest from our enemies. Just like Israel delivered God's people then, Jesus delivers God's people forever. A couple examples. In Daniel 7, that was the very first passage I spoke from at Bayview, fun fact, it says that, the, says that the Son of Man will come one day in all of glory and awe and power, and he will wage war against all evil and injustice, and finally there will be rest from our enemies. Along comes Jesus, and he says that he is the Son of Man. That's why everyone who followed him, everyone who believed in him, they thought that Jesus was going to lead a violent revolution against the Romans. If you remember at Christmas, we looked at Mary's Magnificat, and she's staring at the Herodium. This is Herod's big weekend palace. And she's saying, uh, my child, he's going to bring justice for the oppressed, dignity for the outcast, and it's going to be a problem for those in power who oppress all of us. She probably had in mind there was going to be a revolution in this way. That's what revolutions looked like then. That's what revolutions look like now. And you see later in Luke 9, the disciples are talking to Jesus and saying, hey, some people say that you're Elijah. You're our next prophet. You're our next Messiah. Do you remember what he did there? Is it time to start the revolution in this way? And Jesus just laughs and rebukes them. The more he speaks, the more they don't get it. This guy isn't leading the revolution like he should be, but he says he's the Messiah, which we're waiting for, Garden of Gethsemane. Peter thinks, okay, it's finally time to strike back against the Romans. And he hacks off an appendage from the soldier. And Jesus is just shaking his head. He takes it and he heals him. You just don't get it. The type of revolution that I'm going to lead. Why? Jesus dying on the cross is where he wages the ultimate warfare on evil. It brings the ultimate rest from our enemies by flipping all of our expectations upside down. Galatians 3, it says that Christ became a curse for us. He frees us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse itself. And this is the ultimate warfare. This is the ultimate judgment. You can't really have grace and forgiveness without judgment. Jesus talks about judgment more than anyone else in the Bible. Jesus talks about judgment more than anything else. You can't have grace and forgiveness without judgment. How could it be any other way in this way? So we see that God isn't so concerned 
to destroy this enemy or that enemy. When we look at his grand solution, when Jesus comes, he didn't come to take out the Romans. He's not coming for Herod. He's not coming for Pilate. He didn't come for the enemy. He came for the enmity. Enmity means strife or conflict. And God comes for the root to destroy the evil that is eating away at his creation in the world. Jesus slays and destroys the enmity that causes the enemies between us and humanity. If he took the sword, if Jesus took the sword, he would just take out one enemy, but another would pop up. You can't just play whack-a-mole with evil forever. That doesn't solve the problem. You can't put a band-aid on cancer. And the Bible's clear on this. Ephesians 2. Let me read two parts here. Verses 1 to 3. It's talking about us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, we're all at war with each other. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were enemies with God. And because of that, that overflows, and now we're enemies with each other. And Paul's going to say, but God, rich in mercy, sent Jesus to reconcile us to him and to one another. Verses 14 and 15. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul's talking about people groups, ethnicities with tension. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, that's the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see that? That Christ goes for the root. Christ gives us rest from our enemies. And this helps us answer our original question we were trying to figure out today. How can I have peace from my enemies? How can I have rest from my enemies? Through the violence of grace. The violence of grace is really the only real way of destroying an enemy. Because if you just whack your enemy, they might go away for a mile, they might come back. If you whack them hard enough, they might be gone forever, but their family might come after you, or their group, or their people, or their community. And it doesn't solve the problem, it just perpetuates it. Sometimes it just grows and escalates. That's like any good mafia movie, right? This was done to me and I'm going to strike back. But an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. We don't respond to evil with evil, but through grace. Let me give you a, a beautiful example of this. You might know the, the novel, kind of adapted into a musical, Les, Les Miserables, Les Miserables, as the French say, by Victor Hugo. And it opens with this man, Jean Valjean, and he's been in prison for 19 years because he stole a loaf of bread. He was trying to feed a starving child. He gets out of prison, and he hates the world, and he knows the world hates him. He's been mistreated by the justice system, by the governance system. His family's impoverished. He's trying to get by and he can't. He gets out after 19 years. A little while after his release, he stays overnight in the home of a bishop. A bishop welcomes him in, feeds him, says he can stay here, you know, extends grace to him. And in the night, Jean Valjean steals a bunch of silver artifacts from the priest and hits the road. That next day, he's caught, and the police drag him back to the home of the bishop and say, look, we found this guy who stole all these things from you. Basically a pillowcase full of silver goods. 
And there's the tension, right? Jean Valjean, you can see him on his knees, head bent in shame, probably going back into prison again. And the priest says to him, I'm so glad you brought him back, my friend. I'm glad you're here because you forgot a few things that I wanted you to have. And he took, you know, in the movie adaptations, it's two silver candlesticks, very valuable, and says, you forgot these. Take these as well. Do you, do you see the flip? Do you see the switch? He says to the officers, okay, you can, you can leave them. It's all good. No, we're friends. Take these things as well and go in peace. When he had every right to take back what was owed him, to get even, to get right, you know, the offense, I let you in my house and you steal my things. And he says, guess what? There's more. Take this. Let me give you two quotes. This shows the violence of grace, because you're going to see Jean Valjean, how he's just messed up by this, a bitter man who was just given a taste of grace. When Jean Valjean left the bishop's house, he was, as we have seen, quite thrown out of everything that had been his thought hitherto. He could not yield to the evidence of what was going on within him. He, hard, he hardened himself against the angelic action and the gentle words of the old man. You have promised me to become an honest man. I buy your soul. I take it away from the spirit of perversity. I give it to the good God. That's what the bishop said to him. Guess what? I'm showing you grace. I'm giving you to God now. This reoccurred to his mind unceasingly. To this celestial kindness, he opposed pride, which was the fortress of evil within us. He was indistinctly conscious that the pardon of the priest was the greatest assault and the most formidable attack which had moved him. That his obduracy, this means that if he stays stubborn in the face of this, that his obduracy was finally settled if he resisted this clemency. You know what? If I resist even this, then my moral depravity is secured. I'm going to become a monster if this isn't allowed to move me. That if he yielded, he should be obliged to renounce the hatred with which the actions of other men had filled his soul through so many years and which pleased him. That this time it was necessary to conquer or to be conquered and that a struggle, a colossal and final struggle, had been begun between his viciousness and the goodness of that man. He was presented with this grace and it disturbed him and he had to decide, okay, will I ignore this and seal my fate or will I respond to this because I know this is going to change my heart and challenge all of the anger and resentment and unforgiveness that I have in my heart as well. To understand the gospel, we are released from our enemies in two ways, at least two ways. First is humility. Do you know that you are a sinner in need of grace, that Christ had to come for you to give up his life for you when you did not deserve it? That's pretty humbling, isn't it? And it inoculates us against responding in evil and self-righteousness. Oh, this person did this to me. I would never do that. How could they do that? Well, guess what? We wronged God. He did not give us what we deserved, but an innocent and holy God came, lived the life we could not live, paid the price that we deserved to earn the freedom and right standing and forgiveness that we could not have in this way. The gospel says that you are no better and you are saved by grace. And it stops the cycle. This is practically because evil can't get a foothold in your heart. Your enemies can't take your peace. Your enemies can't destroy you 
because they can't make you hate them. They can't make you hate them anymore. If you hate your enemies, you don't know that you're a sinner saved by grace. That's the long and short of it. You are vulnerable and you have no rest from your enemies, but the gospel humbles us out of our self-righteousness and frees us to grace for them. Second is identity. The gospel changes who we are. Romans 8 talks about the status of adoption. We've been freed, reconciled, declared clean. Christ has paid our balance. There's six or seven different metaphors that Paul uses in Romans in there. But the Son of God, God in eternity on Most High, thought you were worth coming for, dying for, losing everything for, experiencing infinite suffering for, and now you have a pardon and infinite rest guaranteed. And after that, who are you? Where does your value come from? Where does your identity come from? If your self-worth is tied up in your net worth, then you're very vulnerable to your enemies because your enemies can touch your money. If your self-worth is tied up in your reputation, you're very vulnerable because your enemies can besmirch your good name. But guess what? If my true inheritance is in heaven, if my identity is tied up in Christ, then you can't hurt me. Touch my money, that's fine. That's not who I am. You can come after my reputation, that's fine. My identity's in Christ. If you know your real treasure is in heaven, money is just money. Your enemy can't hurt you. They can't touch you. They can't harm you. They can't control you. They can't make you evil. They can't make you go out. Um, and now you can go out and freely and lovingly offer them grace and forgiveness in this way. This is the only opportunity for your enemies to become friends. They may not respond in this way. It's out of your hands. But this is the only door where the cycle stops. The violence of grace destroys the enmity, not the enemy. That's how we can have rest from our enemies. So friends today, as we listen, as we're wrapping up, first question is this. Do you want to have rest from your enemies? Do you actually want that? That's a real question. Because we can hold tight to this. This can be our source of self-righteousness. It's how we define ourselves, through how we've been wronged. This is now the, the trajectory of our life and we're just living out in this pain. Do you want to be free from this? It's gonna hurt. Christ comes for the heart, but he's a gentleman. Jesus will knock on the door, but he will not come where he's not welcome. Do you want Christ to set you free from this? Do you want his spirit to come in? The choice is yours, the pain of change or the pain of staying the same. Do you want to be free from this? Do you want to have peace? Do you want to recognize your need for forgiveness, that's the humility, and the new status and identity that we have as a Christian? If you want this today, if you want to continue in this, if there's an area in your heart you recognize there's still some bitterness, some unforgiveness today, I'm going to lead us through a prayer. You can read this out loud alongside with me. Dear God, help me to forgive. Take the burden of unforgiveness and bitterness away from me. Help me to give up my right to get even. Free me from the emotions that are keeping me in the painful grip of the past. I want to forgive as you have forgiven me. I may not like forgiving, but I know with your strength and in your power, I can forgive. I know I need to forgive for real healing to happen. I trust you to deal justly with those who violated and wronged me. I will leave the justice up to you. I don't want to, become, uh, to be overcome with evil, but desire to overcome evil with good. I will surrender my unforgiveness to you and choose to forgive. Now church, let's continue in worship.